This is The Rounds Table. Hey, Rounds Table listeners. It's a throwback Thursday, even though we're recording on a Tuesday. Amol Verma and I, Kieran Quinn, are joining you back on another episode of the relaunch of The Rounds Table. Huge thanks to the brothers Freilich for inviting us on. Amol, great to hear your voice again. I know it's been a really long time. I am alive and well. And I'm really excited that the rounds table is also alive and well, despite our sort of uh, ominous almost death in the summer. I know there was a sunset and now we're on a sunrise again. I'm, I missed it. So I'm happy that we're back on and it's fired up again, ready to roll. So on that note, let's get into the rapid fire style format that the Freilich brothers are now using, which I love. And I'll introduce the article that I'm going to talk about today, Amol, for the one of the four we'll talk about is called The Association of Patient Priorities Aligned Decision-Making with Patient Outcomes and Ambulatory Healthcare Burden Among Older Adults with Multiple Chronic Conditions, a non-randomized clinical trial, and a mouthful as well, published by Dr. Mary Tinetti et al. in JAMA Internal Medicine in October of 2019. Uh, that sounds exciting. Tell me about the study. Tell me, why did the authors do this study? Well, Most people know, and if you don't know, the burden of rising complex disease is also accompanied by increasing healthcare expenditures. So generally, healthcare systems are shifting their focus on trying to provide high-value care. That is, care that improves the patient experience, the health of our population, at the lowest possible cost, this so-called triple aim. And since many older adults with complex illness report a preference to focus on comfort over survival... The question really is, can we achieve this if we align care with the stated preferences of our patients? So on that note, the research question that the authors asked for this study was to determine whether care that is guided by patient priorities is associated with a perception of more goal-directed and less burdensome care compared with usual care. Uh, that's great. And so uh, how did they explore this? What, it, what is, sounds like an incredibly nuanced question, actually. It is. I think it's actually quite a difficult question to get at, but I applaud them for trying because I think it's incredibly important. So they did a non-randomized clinical trial and they used propensity adjustment to try to align up the people who were getting the intervention versus not so that they were similar and as close to a randomized trial as they could get. They included adults who were over the age of 65 years and had three or more chronic conditions, thereby making them complex, and either 10 or more medications or they had two visits to a specialist in a year, and they were cared for by primary care physicians as well as cardiologists in Connecticut in the year 2017 and 2018. Important exclusions were those with dementia and those who lived in nursing homes. So the intervention was called the Patient Priorities Care Intervention. This was a non-physician, which is kind of cool, facilitated discussion with patients to help them clarify what they valued in their life and they valued for their care. And they helped them identify their health outcome goals that were then transmitted to care providers. Then the healthcare providers explored those discussions and themes with the patients and the goals and trialed various interventions about starting or stopping various things that they're doing and continuing other types of healthcare interventions depending on what the patient's diseases were and the care priorities that were seen before them. Okay, so let me get this straight. So they spoke with a non-doctor, so some other type of healthcare professional, maybe a, a nurse or some kind of health coach or something like that to clarify their own wishes. And then that information was used to inform their choices with their physicians? 
That's right. And I think the idea is one of time pressures. Physicians often are pressured to have these complicated and time-consuming discussions with their patients when they're also doing a whole bunch of other things for them at the same time. So they tried to have this facilitator who was a trained research coordinator to have these discussions, highlight the main themes, and then pass that on to the healthcare providers who could then apply them, enact them, and put them in the context of the care that they were actually delivering. That's great. And how did they find a control group? Who did they compare these people to? So these were people that were seen in these large healthcare systems in Connecticut, and they were done by the clinic pods. So there was like one clinic that was assigned to have people that were just coming through and they would get this patient priorities care intervention. And the other clinic was just kind of getting usual care, but that wasn't randomized in a formal kind of way. It was just whoever was coming through the door in those clinics. And the patients were supposed to be similar, but as I mentioned, they used that propensity adjustment just to line up the patients together to match them so they were more similar. Uh, Sounds great. And so uh, what were the outcomes that they were interested in? So they used validated scales that to measure um, changes in perceived experience of chronic disease care. They also used scales to measure perceived shared decision-making and goal ascertainment, as well as perceptions of burdensomeness of treatment. And they measured that at six months following a baseline measurement. The secondary outcomes they looked at were medication use, self-management tasks that patients were asked to do for their own care, medications that were added or stopped, the use of diagnostic tests, referrals to other healthcare providers, and procedures that they were ordered or avoided uh, for as part of that patient's care. Okay. And so what did they find? Well, they had patients who were about a 75-year-old male or female that were quite educated. Most patients had a high school or greater level education. So when we're thinking about sort of self-assigned tasks, these patients were educated to do so, at least. Most patients had four chronic conditions. These are typically hypertension, heart failure, arthritis, chronic kidney disease, or depression. And on average, they were taking about seven medications. So the main findings were that the perceptions of treatment burden went down, more so in the patients who had this facilitated priority care discussion than in the usual care group. And there was about a five-point difference on the scales. Now, we don't actually know what the minimally clinically important difference on those scale was, but there was a difference that was statistically significant. Patients who had that discussion were more likely to have medications stopped, have less tests ordered, and have uh, self-management tasks assigned to them. But overall, the other outcomes, the perceived experience of chronic disease care and the shared decision-making and goal ascertainment scores were not different between the groups. Hmm. So what's your takeaway after all that? Well, it seems to me that patients who have these facilitated value-based care discussions are probably less likely to feel burdened by their disease which may be associated with less medication, self-management tests, and diagnostic tests, but the care experience and to a ability to achieve actually what their stated goals are do not appear to have that association, which is, I think, what the ultimate hope is. So the other concern I have is that the additional time and probably additional costs that are associated with this type of intervention may actually end up offsetting the accrued savings, although that wasn't formally measured in this study. So overall, pun intended, the value of this intervention is unclear. All right. Well, it's a very worthy effort and an important cause. And I'd flag something actually that I just came across in the New England Journal of Medicine. I don't know if you saw this, but Scott Halperin, one of the distinguished services researcher, 
wrote an article called Goal Concordant Care, Searching for the Holy Grail, just in a recent uh, issue, maybe even this most recent issue of the New England Journal of Medicine, October 24th, 2019. So listeners who are interested in this topic and want to hear more about it could definitely read that. And I think one of his major takeaways is that finding a way to move the needle on this topic is hard. Yeah, I loved that essay that he wrote. It was fantastic. And I agree. It's also hard to measure whether we're actually achieving goal concordant care because that can kind of change over time and uh, so yeah, do read that. It's very excellent. Thanks for the uh, reference there, Mo. So let's move on on a, on a quick clip here. The second article I was going to cover is called The Effect of Collaborative Dementia Care via Telephone and Internet on Quality of Life, Caregiver Wellbeing, and Healthcare Use. This was the Care Ecosystem Randomized Clinical Trial published by Dr. Catherine Posen in JAMA Internal Medicine in September of 2019. Okay, well, that's an intriguing title for sure. I have uh, my attention has been piqued. So tell me about how I can use the telephone to improve care for patients with dementia. Yeah, I think we have to start thinking about innovative ways or at least different ways to provide care to people rather than having them all come into our offices. So that's essentially the importance of this study that few health systems really have adopted effective dementia care management programs. And this was a model of care that the researchers had developed around centralized hubs across broad geographic areas to be able to provide care to caregivers and persons with dementia independently of their health system affiliations. And so they asked whether this care ecosystem, this regional delivery of telephone-based care, which is a collaborative dementia care program, would improve outcomes that were important to persons with dementia, their caregivers, and the payers as well. Okay, very interesting. So uh, tell me, how did they go about tackling this important question? So this was a single blinded randomized trial, including 780 adult dyads, that is the caregiver and the patient themselves who has dementia. And that was conducted between 2015 and 2018 in California, Nebraska, and Iowa. They used telephone-based collaborative dementia care that was delivered by a trained care team navigator so again, non-physician, who provided education, support, and care coordination with a team of dementia specialists, which included an advanced practice nurse, a social worker, and a pharmacist, on advice about how to care for that patient with dementia at home. Okay, so uh, what were the important outcomes that they were examining in the study? So this was a quality of life study, and they used a quality of life scale for Alzheimer's disease based on the caregiver's rating of well-being. That included physical health, energy level, mood, living situation, memory, relationships, and finances. So it's interesting that the caregiver is rating their perceived quality of life of the patient that they're helping with dementia. And that's a four-point scale that went from poor to excellent. Secondary outcomes, we're talking about really healthcare use, how often these people with dementia were using emergency department, how often they were hospitalized, the use of ambulance services, and then they also measured some caregiver outcomes, which is really important as well, around caregiver depression and caregiver burden. These were measured at six months and then again at 12 months. Uh, that's great. And I imagine, although I don't know for sure, and maybe you'll tell me, I would assume that the caregiver's assessment of their own burden is probably related to their assessment of their loved one's quality of life. So I would imagine that those two things are related. Okay, so tell me... Uh, what did they find? 
So a typical patient in this trial was a 78-year-old man or woman who was highly educated again. Um, their annual income was between fifteen dollars and $50,000, and they had mild dementia. So only about 20% in this trial actually had advanced dementia. Many people had comorbid depression as well. So that just sort of gives you a picture of their ability to, to manage at home and some of their sociodemographic factors. The caregivers themselves also had similar demographic profiles, although typically were about 10 years younger than the patients themselves. Most were a spouse or a daughter, interestingly, to show you just who actually looks after these uh, people. And more than 50% of these caregivers suffered with severe caregiver burden. So you can see, even in patients with mild dementia, just how much of a full-time job and how stressful it can be to look after these patients who have a lot of needs and are vulnerable individuals. Ultimately, on the patient side of things, the care ecosystem improved quality of life, reduced emergency department visits, and decreased caregiver depression and burden. But it did not reduce hospitalization or the frequency of use of ambulance services. On the caregiver side, the care ecosystem was associated with improvements in caregiving burden, depression, and self-efficacy. And I think, to your point earlier, Amol, that's where you see that sort of crossover interaction between those two ratings. And do you have a sense of the effect size of those improvements? Like, were there meaningful improvements in the quality of life ratings? So it's interesting. The way that they reported these results was on what's called the beta estimate. So just sort of a measure in the statistical analyses that they did. They didn't actually talk about any minimally clinically important differences or whether that was, you know, significant otherwise. So all we have is really a statistical measure that they are different and there is improvements. Hmm. Okay. So I guess that makes it a little bit more challenging to interpret, but tell me what you think is the most important takeaway from this study. Well, I think that this trial teaches us that effective care management for dementia can be delivered remotely. I think that's the, for me, the key takeaway. You don't have to have somebody in front of you in your office to be able to help them in some way. And you can use that in a centralized hub to supplement usual care and mitigate potentially this growing societal and economic burden of dementia. And so I think that is what we should take away, is that there's many different technological improvements in our society, like telehealth, that can reach patients who may or may not be able to get to our offices, and we can still make a difference in their lives. Or, yeah, and importantly, not just patients, but I guess their caregivers. And uh, any limitations to generalizing the findings of these studies? Well, we don't actually know about outcomes on the end-of-life care and their institutionalization rates, whether they change that at all. In other words, people going to a nursing homes or not. Um, those are actually being measured and will be reported in a later study, so tune in later. And then from an economic savings point, because they talked about payers as well in this study, they estimate about $600 per person are being saved, but that's limited to use of acute care. We don't know about the extra costs maybe that are put on the caregivers or the patients themselves by remaining at home or other services that they may have to use. So whether it's a cost-saving measure or not is also unclear. Okay, great. Thanks for sharing uh, both of those interesting articles. I guess my broad takeaways, first of all, is that these are both interesting and creative approaches to trying to tackle what are otherwise like quite intractable problems like dementia or, you know, assessing and delivering goal concordant care. So, and then obviously we are going to have mixed results when you uh, take swings at difficult problems, right? You're going to have a couple misses from time to time. So one of your studies was very promising and the other one uh, less so. Yeah, 
And I think I commend them both at least for trying, because as you said, they're very important and difficult areas to address. All right. So why don't I dive in? Go ahead. Well, in keeping with our theme of high value care, I picked two studies, but they're very different than the two you picked. The two studies I picked are kind of about the integration of biomarkers in treatment decision algorithms, essentially. And sort of, can we use lab tests to change the way we investigate or deliver treatments for common conditions. I love it. Variety is the spice of life. Why don't you introduce the first article you'd like to take us through? Yeah. So the first article is the Artemis study named after the wonderful Greek goddess of the hunt, apropos to how you just spent your weekend, Karen. (laughs) Go on. (laughs) So the Artemis study was published by Vanderpool and colleagues in the New England Journal of Medicine in March of 2019. And this was about adapting an algorithm for diagnosing suspected pulmonary embolism in women who are pregnant. Okay, well, I think that that is one of the vexing challenges uh, around diagnosis is dealing with potential pulmonary emboli and venous thromboembolism in pregnancy. So I'm interested. Let's let's hear a little bit more. Tell us why they wanted to study this and how they uh, went about doing it. Yeah, I mean, you rightly pointed out that it's a vexing problem. It's a a tough problem. Uh, We know that PE affects about two women per 1,000 deliveries. So like roughly 0.2% of cases, which means it's not that common, but it's also not that uncommon given how many deliveries are happening all the time. And the challenge, of course, is that it's a serious and life-threatening problem, but that the workup relies on essentially chest imaging, which has some potentially toxic exposures, You know, most notably the irradiation to women who have very metabolically active breasts and the you know resultant risks of breast cancer. So, you know, trying to reduce CT scanning in this patient population or even nuclear scanning in this patient population is, you know, an important goal. And at this point there are no well-validated diagnostic algorithms for PE in pregnancy. Okay, I'm convinced. So, tell me about how they went about trying to actually figure out if they could reduce radiation and use some different type of biomarker. Yeah, so this was a multi-center prospective cohort study in Europe, and they essentially adapted from the YEARS algorithm. So you might remember that a couple of years ago, a group also in Europe with overlap from you know some of the investigators in this study developed the YEARS algorithm, which is a simplified version of you know the WELL score, essentially. And so the idea was, can we take that YEARS algorithm, add to it a simple biomarker, so the D-dimer test, and evaluate whether we can safely rule out pulmonary embolism in pregnant women. So what they did was they included pregnant women who were referred to the emergency department or an obstetrical ward for suspected PE. So these were people in whom PE was already suspected, and it was suspected on the basis of either chest pain or dyspnea. They then applied to those roughly 500 women, so they included about 500 consecutive pregnant women, And to them, they applied this uh, YEARS algorithm. And so the YEARS algorithm has essentially three components, whether the patient had clinical signs of DVT, whether they had hemoptysis, or whether PE was the most likely diagnosis based on history and physical. So there were three, those three options. And then they added the D-dimer test. The algorithm is slightly different in the sense that in pregnant women, what they said was, if you have signs of DVT, just do a leg Doppler. Don't think about it. Do a leg Doppler. If it's negative, then continue the algorithm. And then the algorithm essentially gives you 
two D-dimer thresholds. And if you have none of the other clinical criteria, you can use a higher D-dimer cutoff. And if you have one to three years criteria, so if any of those three that I just said are positive, you use a lower D-dimer cutoff. And then based on that cutoff, you check the D-dimer. And if it's above the threshold, you have to scan the patient. But if it's below the threshold, you can rule out PE without scanning the patient. So here's my teach back. You tell me if I get it right. We have a clinical decision rule or algorithm in pregnant women with suspected PE who are referred to the emergency room and using three criteria from the years criteria, as well as varying D-dimer thresholds based on the number of years criteria that they meet, it helps guide what the next steps are as far as performing a CT pulmonary angiogram, doing a leg ultrasound instead, or doing nothing at all. Uh, you got it almost exactly right, with the slight exception that if they have signs of a DVT, you don't care about the D-dimer, you just do the leg Doppler. But separate from that, if the leg Doppler is negative, then you check the D-dimer level. And if it's above you know, the varying threshold, then you do a scan. If it's below it, then you don't need to do a scan. So that's exactly right. It's, uh, it's essentially a, a decision algorithm. Perfect. And so what was their primary outcome that, and some of the secondary outcomes that they were measuring to see if this clinical decision rule was effective? Yeah, I mean, the major thing that they were looking for was whether they could reduce the use of CT scans. And what they were checking to see whether they could safely do that was whether the patients developed any signs of venous thromboembolism in the subsequent 90 days after the initial assessment. Okay, makes sense. And so what did they find? Yeah, so they included, as I mentioned, about 500 pregnant women. One important point about this was that like about half of the women in the study were in the third trimester. And that's a bit atypical because most pulmonary embolism in pregnancy happens in the first trimester. So there is a bit of weirdness there in who was included in the study. Nevertheless, what they found was that half of the patients met none of the year's criteria, did not have any of those cl positive clinical signs, and the D-dimer was below the cutoff in about 40% of women. So what that meant is that they were able to safely exclude pulmonary embolism in about 40% of women without doing imaging. Wow. Among those who did not receive a CT pulmonary angiogram, it was about 200 women who didn't get scanned. Only one patient had a subsequent thromboembolic event within 90 days, and that one patient had a DVT. And I think they had a DVT like on day 89 or something crazy like that. Wow. <laughs> Almost perfect. Yeah, I know. I can imagine those investigators like pulling their hair out. Um, <laughs> and what they found was that among those who did get scanned, 16 patients, so about 5%, were diagnosed with a PE. Okay. So what were the main limitations in this study and what do we need to be cautious of if we're trying to apply it? Yeah, I think the major limitation, one is the lack of women in the first trimester, as I mentioned. So, you know, whether this algorithm is safe in that population or not, it does like, you know, make you wonder a little bit. A second, I think important issue is, as I mentioned, these were a selected set of women in this population who there was already the possibility of PE being raised. So you could imagine there being potentially some selection bias in the study population. And then uh, finally, the most important thing is that D-dimer assays and thresholds vary across institutions. And so the ability to use the thresholds that they've described in the paper requires checking with your local lab to see if your lab complies with that D-dimer uh, assay. 
So I can say, for example, that at St. Michael's Hospital, we currently do not have the same assay. So we could not apply this to that patient population. Oh, really important caveat. I also wonder how much those thresholds that they chose vary in different trimesters of pregnancy, which which speaks to your comment about them being mostly in the third trimester. And I wonder if those thresholds perform better in third trimester versus, say, first trimester. Yeah, I think that from sort of the thrombosis world, those who are more conservative and cautious would like to see the algorithm validated in more women in the first trimester. I'll say that there was one reassuring sort of additional study. There was an external validation study. There was another cohort of pregnant women and sort of they post hoc applied the same criteria. So they didn't do it prospectively, but they post hoc said if we applied the same criteria in that population and they showed that um, the algorithm safely excluded PE with no failures in 20% of patients. So not as much as the 40%, but safely did it. Uh, So that does, I think, add some validity to the findings. So I guess my major takeaway from this is for us clinicians, you know, I think obviously we're going to probably wait until it ends up in a guideline, but I wouldn't be surprised if this ends up in a guideline sometime soon and therefore works its way into clinical practice. Yeah, I think it's extremely helpful and takes a little bit of that guesswork out of sometimes what to do with these highly charged situations. All right, what's your second article? So we're moving from D-dimers to C-reactive proteins. So my second article is about the use of antibiotics in outpatient chronic obstructive pulmonary disease um, and the use of C-reactive protein testing to guide that. So this was published by Christopher Butler and colleagues in the July 2019 edition of the New England Journal of Medicine. Fantastic. So why is this an important question to ask? And what specifically were they trying to do as far as their research question was concerned? Yeah, so I think as physicians who see a lot of patients with COPD exacerbations, although primarily in an acute inpatient setting, certainly what we know is most of our patients receive antibiotics. And in fact, more than 80% of patients with an acute COPD exacerbation do receive antibiotics. However, the clinical practice guidelines recommend antibiotics specifically for people who have the cardinal symptoms, also known as the Antonisin criteria, also known as the Winnipeg criteria, which are increased shortness of breath, increased sputum volume, increased sputum purulence. I think any good internal medicine medical student could probably rhyme those off. But I think uh, any of us as physicians who practice know that those are very subjective, difficult to interpret, and it's hard to know when to prescribe antibiotics in the absence of an obvious pulmonary infiltrate or infectious trigger, right? Agree completely. And so the purpose of the study was to say, well, maybe an inflammatory marker can give us some insight and help guide the choice of whether or not to prescribe antibiotics. And I will note the very important condition here. This is in outpatient COPD exacerbation. Okay. Less applicable to you and I as in mainly inpatient physicians. So tell me how they went about then trying to figure out whether they could do this with a point of care test. Yeah, so this was a super impressive randomized control trial in 86 primary care practices in the United Kingdom. Patients 40 years or older with a diagnosis of COPD and presenting with an exacerbation to their primary care physician and who had at least one of the Winnipeg criteria were included in the study. Makes sense to me. And they were randomized to either a strategy where the physician primary care practice received a point of care CRP machine with some guidance for the physicians. So the guidance delivered to the physicians was essentially what levels of CRP 
using this machine would suggest antibiotics likely or unlikely. And so essentially there's three thresholds. There's the low group where antibiotics are unlikely to help. That's a CRP less than 20. And if the CRP was more than 40, antibiotics were said likely to help. And somewhere in the range between 20 to 40, it said antibiotics may help. So the physicians received that guidance and the point of care CRP test, which you do kind of a finger prick and you get your result within a few minutes, just right there. And the control groups did not receive that intervention. Okay. Well, that's, I think, pretty straightforward. So tell me, did this point of care CRP testing device make any difference? Yeah, great question. So they included 653 patients who were on average 68 years old, about half were men. Most had about seven days of symptoms before presenting. The average FEV1 was about 60%, so kind of like a moderate COPD group. And 45% of patients had all three of the Winnipeg criteria. So, you know, presented with what I think we would at least historically have treated with antibiotics. The primary outcome was antibiotic use. And the second primary outcome was patient-reported COPD-related health status. And did they see a difference in those outcomes? Yeah. So what they found was that in the group with CRP testing, so the vast majority of people in that CRP strategy received a CRP test. And in that group, 57% of patients received antibiotics. In the non-CRP group, 77% of people received antibiotics. So a difference of 20%. So 20% fewer people received antibiotics in the CRP-guided strategy. And what they found was there was no clinical difference in COPD symptoms, no difference in hospitalizations or in subsequent diagnosis of pneumonia. Well, it's pretty impressive. One in five people are spared an antibiotic. That's that's uh, important. Yeah, totally. So I think you know a, a 20% reduction in antibiotic use, which seems safe, you know, based on their other outcomes, with the caveat that the study was empowered to detect real differences in readmissions or hospitalizations or things like that. But, you know, no signal seen on those things. I agree with you. Super impressive. It begs the question, though, that if you can get away with fewer antibiotics overall, should we be questioning these age-old criteria that we use to give antibiotics in the first place? I mean, I know this trial didn't assess whether patients derived benefit from the antibiotics. That wasn't their question, but it makes me think about that. It's probably a tangent for another day, but so that was a 1987 study in Winnipeg that those criteria are based off of. And do you know what the other treatments for COPD were in 1987 and how similar they are to today? (laughs) I can't imagine that they're anything at all like what we do today. So in that original Winnipeg study, only some of the patients received steroids. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. So I completely agree with you. And you know, what's really fascinating is when they looked at the results of this study, I mentioned that they looked at the patients who had one, two, or three of the Winnipeg criteria. Mm -hmm. The big difference was in the patients who had two or three criteria present. So when you only had one criteria present, you know, people didn't prescribe that much antibiotics to begin with. But when you have two or three of the criteria present, which is kind of like what our clinical practice is, right, the vast majority of those patients in the usual care group, like 80 to 90%, got an antibiotic. But in the CRP-guided group, that was able to decrease to 40 to 60%. So that's really where the main difference was. And it suggests exactly to your point that those criteria are not particularly reliable, And something like an objective biomarker like CRP really helps. Interesting. All right. 
Well, should we move on to the good stuff? I think absolutely. I'll just make one final caveat, which is the main limit to generalizability, of course, from this study is access to point-of-care CRP testing, which I think the vast majority of people do not have in their offices at the moment. You mean you don't have one sitting in your pocket just to pull out on the work? Well, I'm strongly considering investing. Mm, all right. Hopefully you don't have any conflicts of interest. Well, I don't yet. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's move on to the good stuff. We're running out of time here. So tell me, Amal, what were you reading about this week? Yeah. So I was struck this week by a Globe and Mail article that featured a colleague of ours. So Dr. Matt Burke is a neurologist at Sunnybrook, one of our contemporaries, I would say. We trained together, and there's a really thoughtful feature about his work and really focused on the question of the placebo effect. And essentially what Dr. Burke is saying is that the placebo effect is often dismissed in studies as a sign of no benefit, but in research about chronic neurological conditions, especially things like pain, we should actually try to understand more about the placebo effect because it's telling us about something that's happening in people's brains to make them feel better. And that's a real opportunity for learning and insight. Amazing. It's like a good old fashioned way to think, but I think it's absolutely effective, especially in our age and day of more and more specified and complex medical interventions. Maybe the placebo effect is something we can utilize and harness. Way to go, Matt. Congratulations. That's fantastic. So, Kieran, tell me about your good stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, it's been an obsession, obviously, with this episode for me is looking at patient preferences and how do we figure all those out. So, thankfully, there was an article, an essay written in the New England Journal of Medicine about artificial intelligence and natural language processing algorithms that can potentially aid us in the prediction of what somebody's patient preferences might be, even if they couldn't tell us what they were when they are meeting us for the first time. And so this very fascinating essay explores the ethics around whether we should be using these artificial intelligence algorithms to predict care preferences especially because they are so individual to each person. And the question really is, could we use these to augment ours or potentially our patient substitute decision makers' decision making for their overall preferences and goals of care? And what I thought the most thought-provoking discussion in this essay really was came down to was the old saying of, you know, garbage that goes in brings garbage that comes out. And so if we use biased opinions in our current society to create these algorithms, are we going to then just get biased opinions from the computers that come out the other end? But have a read. I highly recommend it. Uh, that's a great recommendation. And I totally agree that the concern around entrenching bias in a bunch of smart artificial intelligence algorithms is very problematic and something we all have to keep our eyes on and be mindful of. Well, Amol, a great reunion to have on this show. And thank you again to Mike and John for inviting us back onto the fantastic relaunch of the rounds table. Hopefully we get some time to do it again. I hope so. I, I want to be something like the uh, Saturday Night Live 5 episode club where we can get access to fancy jackets and a smoking lounge. Are you game for that? Oh, I'll be there with you. I love it. Mike and John, can you make that happen for us? Spectacular. All right. Have a good night, man. Well, signing off. Have a good one. The Rounds Table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table. Special thanks to our audio editor, Emilio Garcia Flores. 
Also thanks to founder of the Rounds Table, Amol Verma, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, the editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all of the support.